you're able to stand, do you please stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning from Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 18b to verse 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that brings uh, life and light to our paths, um, that leads us increasingly to Christ, and that causes um, us to bear fruit for the sake of your gospel. So Father, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that you would continue to minister to us by your spirit as we hear your word. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Aren't you going to be seated? Now the British evangelical author C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his classic work, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, put it on your list. It's, it's essential reading for, for every Christian. This is a quote from Mere Christianity. He said, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So in this morning's text, we see Paul is grappling with something very similar. 
Okay, he's in jail. We've seen that over the past couple of weeks. He's awaiting to hear his fate. Okay, whether he's going to be sentenced to death or whether he's going to be released. But either way, what we're going to see is that Paul is rejoiced. Yeah, and why does he rejoice? Because he's got his eyes set on eternity. Yeah, he knows that whether he lives or dies, he belongs to Christ. And therefore, he'll live wholeheartedly for his glory. So what we're going to see in this passage is that because Christ will save us, we too can live a heavenward life for his glory. So just two points this morning. Firstly, Paul's promised deliverance, and secondly, Paul's dilemma. So Paul's promised deliverance, Paul's dilemma, and let's get off with the, start off with the first point, Paul's promised deliverance. So in, in last week's sermon, we saw that Paul, despite his trials, his, those were his, the fact that he is in prison and the fact that he had jealous rivals who were out to get him, Despite those things, he was able to still rejoice in the midst of him. And so our passage opens up at the second half of, of verse 18, and Paul is still rejoicing. Okay, the, the text says, yes, and I will rejoice. So what's the reason now for Paul's continued rejoicing despite his dire circumstances? Well, verse 19 gives us the answer, and it tells us, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. So the reason why Paul is rejoicing, because he knows that, that his imprisonment is going to turn out for his deliverance. So the question is, well, how can Paul be so sure that he's going to be delivered from prison? Okay, remember, his, his case is yet, to be, is yet to come before Caesar, could go either way. He could be set free or he could be condemned to death. So how then is he so certain that he is going to be delivered? Now the answer to this lies in the meaning of the word that's used for deliverance here in the Greek. And the Greek word is soteria. And on one hand it, it can mean to be rescued from physical harm. Okay, it's the same, this word soteria is used in Acts 7, 25, where it describes Israel's liberation from bondage in Egypt. Yeah, they were literally, God literally rescued them, delivered them out of Egypt. But soteria can also mean more than just freedom from chains. Yeah, it's the word that's used throughout the New Testament for our salvation. Yeah, salvation in Christ, his, his saving work, of saving us from the power of sin, from death, from God's wrath. It describes his work of, of justification, of sanctification, of, glory, of glorification, of, of saving us into eternal life in Christ. Yeah, this is also the meaning of, of, of soteria. So in what sense then is this word being used in, in the context. Well, we can say in both senses. Well, how so? <clears throat> well, it's clear that through Paul's imprisonment, God is going to accomplish his redemptive purposes. 
Now, we saw last week in verse 12 of, of chapter 1, it said that Paul's imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. So because God is sovereign, he promises to work out all things for, for his good. And he's even able to accomplish his redemptive purposes through trials and evil and horrific circumstances. So what this means then is that regardless of the decision of, of Caesar, you know, Paul understands that whatever the outcome, it's ultimately going to turn out for his deliverance. Because Christ is going to be glorified whether he's sentenced to death or whether he's set free. And so the phrase that Paul uses here, that this would turn out for his deliverance, is actually lifted, it's copied and pasted out of Job. Okay, Job 13, verses 15 to 16. And the context of, of that passage is that Job's friends are accusing him of all sorts of, of falsehoods. And before, before his friends, Job is affirming his innocence. And, and uh, he trusts in God despite his, his not-so-ideal circumstances. And he, he, he says this in, in Job 13, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will turn out for my salvation. Okay, there's the phrase that Paul has copied and pasted. So why is it that Paul decides to quote Job here? Well, like Job, Paul is confident that whatever the outcome of his trial before Caesar, his eternal salvation before God, that's secure. That God is going to vindicate him. He's in Christ. And he knows that. And then he continues in, in the next verse, in verse 20. It says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul not only expects eternal salvation through his trials, but also he expects deliverance from the shame of shrinking back in, from declaring the gospel. So he's trusting that when he comes before Caesar to testify that he's not going to be ashamed of the gospel, but that God will empower him with full courage to be a bold witness for Christ. Yeah, that Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. So ultimately, we see that Paul is able to rejoice because he trusts that God will deliver him either way. If he dies a martyr's death, he will have the courage to proclaim Christ even in the face of death and, and will trust that God will, will save him by bringing him into glory, into eternity with Christ. And if in God's providence he's set free, well, it is God who's delivered him to freedom in order to continue to be a bold witness for Christ and his gospel. So whatever the outcome, Paul is assured that God will deliver him, that God will save him, and therefore 
He's able to be set free, to be able to glorify God in the face of both life and in death. Now, while it's God who will sovereignly deliver and save Paul from trouble, we need to understand that God also uses means to fulfill his purposes. Now, if we just go back to verse 19, I skipped out a couple of words there. I'll read them now. It says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul, or God, will deliver Paul by his sovereign power through the prayers of his Philippian brothers and sisters and the help of the Holy Spirit. You see what's going on there? God is sovereignly going to act, yet he is he's acting in response to prayers. Now, it's a cop-out to not bother to pray because you think that God is sovereign. But, oh, well, you know, he's God. He's going to do whatever he's going to do. So what's the point of praying? Okay, it, it, believing in like this cold determinism that we're just some sort of robots. And we touched on this in the catechism class too. Well, frankly, that, that's a grave misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. Okay, Alex, you read for us the um, Westminster Confession, chapter 3. There's an excellent summary of God's biblical understanding of God's sovereignty, where it holds together um, human freedom in the midst of that. Okay, the, we pray. Why do we pray if God is sovereign? Well, we pray precisely <laughs> because he is sovereign. Okay, he's the one who's able to do, as Ephesians 3.24, far more abundantly than we can all ask or think according to the power at work within us. We pray precisely because he is powerful to act, because he is sovereign. We would never want to pray to a God who's not sovereign, who doesn't have the power to do anything. So it's biblical truth that even though God is sovereign, we still have real agency. Yeah, we, as we saw in Acts 17, 28, we live and move and have our being in him. So therefore, we ought to pray all the more. Hey, pray for ourselves that the Lord would deliver us from evil and temptation, the trials that, that we face. And also pray for those who are in need, like the Philippian church prayed for, for Paul in his the midst of his trials and in the midst of his temptations. And we trust that God will intervene by his sovereign power and by the power of the Spirit to accomplish his good and perfect will. So this brings us to our second point, Paul's dilemma in verse 21. So we've just seen now that Paul knows that whatever the outcome of his trial, whether he, he lives or dies, God will still deliver him either way. So now Paul finds himself in a, shall we say, dilemma in inverted commas. Which is better? Is it to carry on living or is it to die? 
So he continues in verse 21, says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So for Paul, at this point, it's clear that, that there are benefits to both. It's a win-win situation here. Now, for many of us, though, we, we may find Paul's statement perplexing. I mean, for most of us, if you, if you handed that option, yeah, which one are you going to choose? I think for, for many of us, the option's obvious. Well, we want to live. I don't want to die. I'm still young. I've still got a whole life ahead of me. Why would I want to die now? And we've got all sorts of reasons to live. Whether it's to enjoy a happy and fulfilling marriage, whether it's to grow a family, whether it's to advance our career, uh, to be financially stable, to pay off our home, uh, you know, create things, be inventive, um, whatever it is. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I mean, they're all good and noble things to aspire to. But if those things are all that we're living for, it means our, our goals and our focus and our hearts are very much earthbound. And that's precisely why for so many of us, death feels like the end. It feels like loss, actually. If, because if our whole lives have been exclusively focused on the things of this life, well, then the end of this life is the termination of our very reason for being. And death then is to be feared. Or it's something at least that we shouldn't think too much about. Rather, we should get busy with living your best life now. Right. <laughs> but this is not how Paul sees things. For him to live on this earth is not so much about self-fulfillment. Instead, it's about Christ. And therefore, for him to die is not a loss at all, but it's a bonus. It's gain. And so he unpacks why this is then in the next verse, in verse 22. And he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for so Paul sees the purpose of his life on earth, and the, the phrase there, living in the flesh, okay, in other parts of the New Testament, living in the flesh can describe the, the, our sinful nature. That's not the sense that is used here. Living in the flesh in this context is, is describing life on earth, normal life here on earth in our bodies. No, so it's not something intrinsically evil. Okay, so... Paul lives to, the, to glorify Christ in all that he does. Okay, for him, it's his, his ministry to the Gentiles, that, that which God has called him to, preaching the gospel to the, the Gentiles, planting and pastoring churches across the, the Mediterranean. And he knows that the nature of what he's doing has eternal significance. Sinners are hearing the gospel. They're coming to repentance. They're receiving Christ. Lives are, be, lives are being transformed. Now, does this mean that you can only glorify God in your life if you're involved in full-time ministry like Paul? Well, absolutely not. Okay, 
we called every single one of us as believers in Christ are called to glorify God wherever he has placed us. And for most of us, that is not full-time ministry. Okay, that's only a very small proportion of Christians who have been called to full-time ministry. Most of us are in our workplaces, with, in the midst of our families, in our friendship circles, and God has put us in those places for a reason. Strategically placed to glorify Him in those things. And it is a noble calling to be a Christian in the workplace. Honor God in the midst of the labor that he has, has given you. Hey, 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 says, We are to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's why our catechism question for today, Westminster Shorter Catechism question answer one, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of our lives? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we've, it's to this that we have been created for. We've been created in order to live a selfless, God-centered life, a life of worship, a life of, of loving God. Loving others, serving others, loving his church. A life lived in thankfulness and obedience to, to God and his, his word. And it's that is what is meant to live a truly abundant and fulfilling life. This is the life which we've all been created for. But Paul is still struggling to resolve his dilemma, okay, to live for Christ or die and gain. Okay, the verses 22, 23 carry on and says, Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Okay, but when we see his preference, the rest of verse 23, he says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So Paul would trade his life now for death any day. He has eternity in mind. And he's very much, as C.S. Lewis would say, heavenly minded. How come? Well, isn't the death the end of things? Isn't when we, when we die, it's just nothingness? Or don't we fall into some soul sleep or something like that? No. Yeah, Paul knows that as soon as he dies, just like the thief on the cross, as soon as he dies, he will be with Christ. He will go directly into the presence of God. He will get to enjoy perfect communion with Jesus, be ushered into his glorious presence. You get to know him for who he is, see him face to face and attain the goal of our faith which is eternal arrest in Christ. And what could possibly beat that? So it's clear that to die and be with Christ in his glory, that's far superior to continuing with life on earth. And so indeed, death in Christ is true gain. 
I don't know about you, but it can be hard for us to grasp this truth. Because often our lives are so earthly focused. So fo- we're so focused on enjoying the comforts of this life. And we think sometimes, well, you know, what could possibly be better? You know, enjoying the mountains and the Drakensberg, sitting on a beautiful deserted beach up the coast. You know, with friends and family. What could be better than that? Or maybe on the other hand, you're so disillusioned with this life that you've experienced so much pain and rejection and trauma in this sin-cursed world that actually all that you want to do is escape it. You want to end your life. And you think that the supposed nothingness of death is, is better than any sort of, of, of life. But the truth is that in Christ, what awaits us in death is far better than anything we can possibly imagine in this life. And it's better than any lie that the thought of suicide would tell you. It's 1 Corinthians 2.9 describes it like this, what, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Brothers and sisters, eternity with Christ surpasses any possible thing you can conceive of. It's the highest of glories, the greatest of joys, utter and complete fulfillment, the truest satisfaction Peace and rest and finally beholding our wonderful Savior face to face. But despite the fact that death in Christ is far superior, Paul finally resolves his dilemma in verse 24 and says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So why does he land on sticking around to live his life here on earth. Well, it's precisely because he's so heavenly minded and focused on eternity with Christ that he realizes that his life on earth has divine purpose. He's not living for himself, but he's living for the one who saved him. And therefore, the most important thing to do is to continue to proclaim Christ and his gospel on earth as he's been doing with the Philippian church. That's why he carries on finishing off in verses 25 to 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And here we see something very special of Paul's pastoral heart, yeah. Yeah, he, he's, his purpose for staying is that he wants to continue to sow into the Philippian church. And he wants to see them grow in their faith in Christ. He wants to continue a long journey with them. Yeah, he doesn't act like a celebrity preacher does who's more concerned about flying around the world speaking at different conferences, speaking at hundreds of different churches, hardly at his own home congregation, and building up his own fame. 
No, Paul is a faithful shepherd who is, knows that he's called to focus on the flock for the long haul. To preach the gospel to them week in and week out. To love his people with the purpose that they too would know that their glorious savior truly saves them. And so that they would be able to, like him, glorify Christ in their own lives. So let's bring this to, to land here. Now, it is really easy to get so focused in our day-to-day lives that we, we can lose perspective of eternity. The problem is that the more we lose sight of the glory of God and fail to find satisfaction in Him, the idols of this world with their false promises start to become increasingly attractive. And we know that idols promise much, but never actually deliver. And instead, they entice us into the snares of sin. And continuing unabated, hard-heartedly, unrepentant, down a path of sin. If we are outside of Christ, the destination is ultimate destruction and despair. And so when death comes, it will, it will be a fearful thing. It will be an awful thing to be cast out from the face of God and into his eternal wrath and judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we deserve on our own. Why? Because all of us have sinned. And have fallen short of God's glory. And God would be just according to his justice. That the wages of sin is death. As Romans 6.23 tells us. So where does that leave us? With no hope? Well thankfully not. (laughs) Because Romans 6.23 doesn't end there. It carries on and says. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So because of God's mercy and his love, he sent his one and only son to pay the wages that we deserved for our sins. And that was death on the cross. But rising again on the third day, defeating death, he forgives all those who truly repent and offers you free gift of grace which is eternal life so friends repent of your sins and trust in the lord jesus christ the lord jesus christ who's the only faithful deliverer and savior hey lift up your eyes toward heaven toward the goal toward the prize and behold his matchless glory holiness and majesty and power and out of that do what you can only do and that is live wholeheartedly for his glory knowing that in death death in Christ is gain as there as Revelation 1 21 3-4 promises us 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Amen.